You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a Senior Editorial Manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. Focusing on your people's priorities is not only the right thing to do, it's also good for business. And today's guest, Omar Kowaja, who's the CISO at Highmark Health, is very passionate about this subject. He's very in tune with the human element in cybersecurity. And too often, when we think of the human element in cybersecurity, it's the insider threats. But more often, it's the hardworking people who work to live rather than live to work although that formula can readily flip due to the nature of the cyber world. As CISO of an organization with more than 37,000 employees, Omar has the double challenge of being both a protector of his organization and the customers associated with his organization, as well as fostering talent. Because if the talent, the team and the greater organization aren't getting what they need to live their lives while growing professionally, they won't stick around. And in a time when the cybersecurity skills gap is such a big reality, it's critical for businesses to foster and retain talent. As cyber attacks continue to grow in frequency and scale, demand for qualified professionals far outweighs supply, fueling a fiercely competitive talent war. So let's get to my talk with Omar Kwaja, a fitting final conversation for 2022. He's been in his role for nine years, which is a long run for a CISO, And as you'll hear, he's built an impressive practice and is super candid and insightful about it. Thanks for joining us this year. Look for new episodes of Trust Issues at the top of 2023. Have a happy new year. Thank you for joining us today, Omar Kwaja, CISO for Highmark Health. And the last we caught up with you was about a year ago, prior to launching this podcast, actually. And and for those who may have missed it, I was hoping maybe we could start off here by giving us a quick sort of introduction into your role as uh, Highmark Health CISO. I just hit my nine-year anniversary about a week and a half ago. Wow. Uh, Long Highmark run. Health started off. Yeah. Yeah. I sometimes uh, feel like I am a CISO dinosaur given <laughs> how many years I've been a CISO at the uh, same organization. But it's been, it's been a fantastic run because I've seen the organization go from being a smaller organization of just... Um, health insurance. To, we used to be the Blue Cross Blue Shield when I started for just uh, one or two states. We've now grown that to about four different states. We used to not have hospitals and now we do. And we started a tech services business and we started a pretty big uh, offshore operation and print shops. And we've uh, doubled in size. We'll probably close the year closer to $26 billion. So it's been an exciting run for these uh, these past nine years. And the new challenges that uh, uh, that have come with uh, with every year running an organization. I also have the uh, privilege of serving on a couple of boards. I serve on the board of uh, High Trust Alliance and of the uh, Fair Institute. And uh, one of my favorite roles is uh, I get to uh, teach at the CISO program at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. So 2022 has been uh, an eventful year, to say the least, for cybersecurity professionals. Um, threats have reached new heights. While skilled professionals are in higher demand than ever, how has the healthcare threat landscape shifted in 2022, and how has your team adapted to tackle these challenges? Yeah, I'd say just the 
velocity feels like it's increased in 2022 compared to previous years. I think some of the reason it feels like the velocity has increased and there seem to be more attacks and uh, more variants and more TTPs and uh, more incidents, particularly those affecting uh, third parties, is because we've also grown as an organization. And uh, we're also expanding digitally at a rate that uh, we've never we've never grown before. So as our surface area surface area expands, there's going to be a lot more opportunity for exposure. And the pace at which we have to operate to keep up to manage those uh, inherent risks and reduce those down to a residual risk that's at some tolerable level is uh, it's an insane pace at which we've had to operate in 2022. And you know we'll continue to do that every year. We feel like just to keep up, we've got to go significantly faster than uh, than we did the previous year. And, you know, internally, we we have a program called Think Up. That's all about that. It's all about how do you do things more efficiently? How do you do them a lot smarter? And some of that is automation. But a lot of that is giving people these newer middle skills that essentially end up being power tools that allow us to operate at 5 or 10x because we're using the right tools for the situation versus trying to bring old tools into uh, new contexts and uh, new speeds. Interesting. As we look back at 2022 and we look forward into 2023, are there any particular trends you're seeing that have emerged in 2022 that you think are relevant going into 2023, gaining speed? Two probably pretty significant trends that I, I think about a lot as I'm planning for 2023 uh, one is uh, around connection. Uh, how do we create strong connection, strong relationships, sense of belonging within the security team itself? Because if the security team operates as a strong unit and operates together, the security program is going to be much more successful. And as we've been spending more and more time physically apart, if we're not very deliberate about how to stay connected, how to make sure that the work that we're doing is connected to something meaningful, something that we feel is impact that um, uh, gives us a sense of uh, pride and excitement and engagement in our job, then we're going to lose the motivation and we're likely not going to do the best work, uh, the best work of our careers. And we really desperately need people to be doing the best work of their careers. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to run a successful security program given all of the threats and the risks that, uh, that we face. But it's also creating strong connections with our technology peers and with the business, with external uh, external third parties and with um, our, our colleagues and other organizations that are working on managing uh, similar risks, uh, the more we can do to strengthen those connections, uh, the more likely we'll, we'll continue to succeed into 23 and beyond. The other thing, David, I think about a lot that concerns me going into 2023 is the uh, level of complexity. So if we think about the variety of technologies that we're tasked with managing and the variety of environments, um, you know, a few years ago, we would talk about this notion of, are you in cloud A or cloud B or cloud C? For a little while, all dreamt of our enterprises picking a cloud provider and uh, just being there. But the reality is for most large enterprises, we're going to be in each of the large cloud providers, whether directly or indirectly. So the number of environments we have to <clears throat> protect, the number of technologies in each of those environments that we have to protect, and the rate of change of each of those technologies is quite dramatic. 
And on top of that, if we think about all of the controls that we're deploying to protect each of those technologies, the preventive controls, the detective controls, the responsive controls that we've been accumulating over the years seems to just grow and grow and grow in an untenable fashion, I think it's really important for us to figure out how we right-size controls, how we manage controls. We're used to talking about and making a case for how do we add more controls, but there isn't enough discussion about how do we know if these controls are of value? Which of these controls do we eliminate? And we free up the time and space to then go focus on getting more value out of the controls that, uh, that we have. And I'll say something that, that probably will seem pretty controversial, um, and it's about defense in depth. Defense in depth is a phenomenal quality, and it's a positive thing. The reality is, no matter what the positive thing is, or quality or characteristic, when taken to the extreme, a strength and a positive actually does at some point start to become a negative, right? A doctor will tell you if you drink too much water, that can actually cause you more harm than good. The same thing with defense in depth. I feel like sometimes we misuse it and we take it a little too far and it becomes an excuse for instead of repairing the imperfections of our controls, we decide to just add more controls. So are you saying that everything in moderation applies to defense in depth? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, it was Julia Child who said everything in moderation, including moderation. So yeah, we should be thinking about, you know, defense in depth and moderation, but taken to the extreme. Is it really serving us or at some point does it end up doing a disservice to us? Hmm. It really interesting. And and first of all, uh, first mention of Julia Child on an episode of uh, Trust Issues. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> as far as looking at these controls and which ones may be put on the chopping block, are you looking, are you methodically doing that now? Or is that something that you know you need to start to do in 2023? We have a process called the uh, the, the BOSITE process, and it's <clears throat> based on a framework that we developed a few years ago, the uh, BOSITE framework. And that's the framework that uh, we developed to say, if we're going to go deploy something new in the environment, this is how we make a case for it and determine whether or not we should do it. And it gets rated and ranked again, other opportunities that we have. And so in the last uh, year or so, the shift that we made is we said we should just take that same framework and we should apply it to all renewals. So why is it that when we're going to go spend a million dollars in something new, we give it this much scrutiny, a lot more scrutiny, but when we are going to go do a renewal for something that may be costing us a million dollars, we give it less scrutiny. You know, the reality is we have a fiduciary responsibility to the organization we operate in, and I have to be super mindful of Every dollar that I spend on the security program is one less dollar that's going into improving care delivery at our hospitals or one extra dollar that uh, premiums are increasing for our members. And, you know, I'm okay with those things happening if there's a really, really good reason for it. But if I'm just managing and maintaining another security shiny object because it's already been there, that doesn't feel like a really good reason. What I found is it's not as much about technology. So I couldn't give you the name of a particular three-letter or four-letter technology and say, you know, to my CISO peers, hey, you should all put technology X on the chopping block and you should stop paying for it because it's a waste of time. From my experience, at least, it's much more about how you've deployed and implemented that technology. What are the series of decisions 
that you've made, the leaders that have been responsible for that technology, the resources they've gotten, the priority that technology's gotten. And based on the deployment of the technology, it may be giving you a lot of value, but it may not be giving someone else value. It may just be shelfware. In our case, when we've eliminated technology, it's not because we think there's something wrong with the technology, but it's more so we think that the way we've implemented it isn't delivering value, so we're better off uh, eliminating it. We're coming up here on three years since the uh, the dawn of of COVID nineteen, and you know a lot has changed with work from from anywhere. And I know that your team is no exception to that role. You've got about. Uh, 200 plus folks on your team working in more than 20 states. And, and prior to COVID, you were in two states. Overall, Highmark Health has 37,000 employees, I, I should add. As far as that connectivity goes, how do you foster connectivity when we are working further apart than, than we were prior to the pandemic? You know, if there's one word response to that, it would be a deliberately. <laughs> when we were in the office, we would serendipitously build connectivity because you'd see someone in the lunch line, you'd see someone on the way to the car, you'd see someone waiting in the elevator lobby. And I can tell you, I've built lots of really memorable relationships in parking decks and elevator lobbies. And in elevators, that's where the initial spark happens. You see that same person two, three, four times. And then you're like, hey, can we spend 30 minutes or an hour together? And uh, that's in fact how our uh, organizational change management program was born is because the elevator was taking too long and there was an organizational change management expert happening to be waiting at the elevator. And then I discovered this whole discipline called organizational change management. Who knew there was a science around how you get people to evolve and change their uh, and, and change and adopt certain behaviors that uh, are meaningful. But serendipity, there isn't nearly as much room left for serendipity. Things won't just spontaneously happen we've got to be way more deliberate. We've got to provide those forms. We've got to uh, uh, give people that sense of belonging. We can't try to get 100 people together and say, let's get together and have a meaningful conversation. We've got to do it in smaller groups. For many years, even pre-COVID, I did something called an Ask the CISO session. I'd get groups of eight or 10 people, maximum 12 people together. That's been wonderful. And I do probably about 40 to 50 of those in a, in a typical year. Um, we do these things called working well sessions. It's not about project updates. It's not about security updates. <clears throat> it's really about how are we working together and how do we foster connectivity? How do we teach each other things? We've had people come in and do lessons on meditation and breathing and talk about yoga. And I had a colleague of ours that talked about how she had survived cancer and some of the learnings from that and, and spreading awareness for that. So it's really just bringing the humanity out that uh, that we all have and in the past, our humanity would show up not in the meetings, but it would show up in the spaces between the meetings. We've got to find room and space for those very human connections again. Finding space for it while still redefining the model of how we work and work together. Yeah. It sounds like because you're not going to, if you've got a team scattered over 20 plus states, you're not all of a sudden going to require them to, to move to uh, Pennsylvania or Delaware. Yeah, absolutely not. You know, one of the uh, one of the biggest influences on me this year that's uh, really helped me figure out how to get that connection is a uh, is a book called Love as a Business Strategy, and we, um, uh, my team and I, all, all the managers read this book earlier in the year, and their tagline was uh, bringing humanity back to the workplace. After reading the book and listening to some of um, uh, some of their, the author's podcast, we said, you know, 
this is the real deal. They're really working and digging deep to do the hard work of saying, how do we actually bring that humanity and that human connection back to the workplace? And so for the last eight, nine months, we've been on this journey and aligning to a lot of the principles and the strategies in the book to do uh, to do exactly that. Really interesting. So you, you're thinking a lot about culture, and, and I know you also think a lot about cybersecurity culture, um, which has been a particular passion of yours. Um, and then there's the Cyber Score program, something you've implemented to engage individual employees and provide actionable feedback on their own security practices. What's going on with that program these days? And are there any new initiatives you've rolled out to weave security even deeper into your organization's culture? David, when we think about programs and when we think about change, um, we think about even uh, w- one of the things that we're big fans of is uh, measurement and metrics. Because to drive something sustainably and to do it at scale, if you can build the right dashboard that resonates with the audience, which means it's something they understand, it's something that they believe they've got control over, and it's something that's meaningful that they're motivated to help improve, that's where the magic happens. When we wanted to drive changes on the technology platforms, uh, we went to each of the technology platforms and we worked with them and we created something called the Secure Index. When we uh, paid attention to how incidents happen and the Verizon DBIR says 85% of all incidents happen because of uh, some involvement of human element, we said, well, how do we get the humans engaged? How do we not talk about humans as the insider threats? How do we turn humans into an asset? How do we engage humans positively? That's how the cyber score was born about maybe four or five years ago. And uh, we've continued to deploy it. And essentially it gives every human in our uh, enterprise a score. So an employee can go to cyberscore.highmark.com and based on eight simple factors, they could see exactly what their cyber score is. And they are told exactly what they can do to improve their cyber score if they'd like to. Um, and what factors are causing their cyber score to be low, uh, almost fashioned around uh, something like the FICO credit score. If you think about compliance training or security training, the the annual training that almost all of us are subjected to in almost all organizations uh, for the last many, many years, uh, people aren't excited to take that. And I know it's odd for me as the CISO to say, I am not excited to take the annual security training, but there you go. I said it. It's not that exciting to take. And so I said to the team, let's make the annual training as short as possible. Like if it's going to be painful, let's keep the pain as uh, as minimal as possible. That's the best we can do. But let's augment that with things that people want to do. In a typical year, we have over 10,000 people across the Highmark Enterprise that voluntarily take cybersecurity training. No one sends out an email saying, do this. It doesn't show up on any checklist. There's no naughty list. The CEO doesn't say do it. Omar doesn't say do it. Your boss doesn't say. All we say is go check out your cyber score. And it turns out a lot of people want their score to be a little bit better and they realize they can take some training, but then the training content has to be awesome. So we partner with a training provider that produces phenomenal content that's actually exciting. And so I get emails saying, Omar, when can we take more of this training? When is the next series coming out? Because this was actually fun. Turns out there's no rule that says the training has to be boring. We can actually make it fun and engaging and exciting. And, and when we do that, people actually want to take it. Do employees who take the training and, and, and score high uh, get uh, like a free pair of Ferrari sunglasses or something like that? Or is it really just a love of the game, pride kind of a situation? 
you know, it's uh, it's mostly that. So for the first few years, they would get nothing. Now I'd have different people coming to me and say, hey, Omar, you should, uh, I'm really proud. I've got a score of 95. I've got a score of 100 on the cyber score. This year, the team said, hey, we should create a champions program. So for people that have maintained a score above a certain threshold for six months or a year or two years, they get a bronze or a gold or a, uh, or a silver certificate. And uh, one of the funnier moments of the year is I got an email from myself congratulating me <laughs> for getting a, uh, getting a certificate. And my immediate response was, this sounds like it could be phishing. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Continuing our people focus, what are you most proud of when it comes to your team's change management efforts? And um, are there any roadblocks or challenges you were able to overcome in the last year, any anecdotal stories about individual employees or you know changing behaviors or, or naysayers becoming cybersecurity champions, anything like that? One of the things that uh, uh, we really did in earnest, we kicked this off uh, uh, last year, but this year really got, uh, got its wings, is the Secure Up program. And that's all about when the business wants to go do something new, a new use case, a new application, it's in the cloud, a new medical device, we want to make sure that that's happening securely. And so that goes through something called the secure up process. That creates a lot of friction because now we're saying to the business, you're not going to have permission, what we actually call an authorization to operate an ATO until you've gone through the process. It takes uh, doing a very deliberate job of explaining why we're going through this process to help overcome obstacles. And you know, our, our first guiding principle in ISRM uh, that we put together maybe about six or seven years ago is first why, then what? It's so easy and it's so convenient and it's so tempting for us to talk about the things we're going to do. And the reality is they end up on deaf ears because the other person isn't even sure why they should try to understand the gobbledygook that you are sending their way because it doesn't make any sense to them. And if they don't know why it should make sense to them or why they should care, they're not going to spend any energy they're not going to invest any energy into trying to understand and trying to figure it out. So explaining the why first and then talking about the what at the very end is really a good thing to do. And same thing here, when we've had <clears throat> multiple business areas that came to me and said, Omar, this is taking too long. I said, look, I understand. You need to get this done. This is really important. Here's the reason we're doing this. These are the types of incidents that happen in these environments. This is what we're preventing. These are the costs that uh, that can that you would incur. These are the reputational damages that you could incur. And you as the business owner do have the ultimate decision-making authority. If you want to accept a lot of this risk, you can do that. However, we're trying to go down this path so there isn't nearly as much risk to accept. And I could tell you when you have that type of a conversation and you do it in words that people actually understand, uh, there's almost no business leader that I come across that doesn't answer with, respond with, that makes sense. Thank you for explaining that. And I appreciate the hard work that your team is doing. Now, it's really, really important that on the other end of that, me and my team work really, really hard to say, if I know the business is really interested in speed to market, that I am conveying to them that we're working really, really hard to get this done as fast as possible. So if the business knows I'm trying to get it done as fast as possible, then the business is going to be very willing and supportive to say, Let's make sure we do it as securely as possible as well. And so when we talk about secure up, the objective is very simply move forward swiftly and securely. And if we have those dual missions in mind, it's a beautiful marriage between the business and security. 
you were interviewed recently for the uh, Wall Street Journal, and you mentioned that practice areas like storytelling, um, among other communities of practice you created a few years ago, is important for leaders in your organization to, to know and learn. The initial driver was simply a quote that I had read from the Institute for the Future, and the quote said, 80% of all jobs that will exist in 2030 are going to be jobs that did not exist in the year 2020. And so to me, I'm a leader of people. I'm also a leader of the security program. And so I, I while those two are very much interconnected, it's important for me to uh, make sure I'm fulfilling both responsibilities, the responsibility to the people I lead to make sure that they are successful as individuals and also responsibility of the program I lead to make sure I deliver on the objectives that the business has hired me to uh, to, to to deliver on in that um, in that role. When it comes to communities of practice, it turns out that it serves both those objectives. If people aren't going to be at high, high mark in the security department, if they're not going to be acquiring new skills every single year, then by the year 2029, they're going to be looking upon a cliff and thinking, I don't think I'm going to have a job next year. What do I do? And why did my bosses not help me? And why didn't they prepare me for this? And, you know, 2029, it's going to be too late to learn brand new skills. We'd rather we be refreshing and updating those skills and developing people every year, every month, every uh, every quarter. But also from the perspective of the program, if we don't know how to engage with the business, if we don't have great skills like storytelling, if we don't know how to align with the technology teams and we don't understand scaled agile, if we don't know how to go to the CFO and explain security in terms of dollars and cents using risk quantification and a framework like uh, FAIR, if uh, we aren't leveraging enough automation to keep up with our adversaries that are automating very, very heavily, if we're not keeping up with all of this data that we have and being able to run analytics outside of Excel to actually be able to mine for insights and uh, make decisions that are way smarter than when we try to do them manually in our head, there's no way that we're going to be keep up, keep up. So those communities of practice help us make sure that we're investing in our people. And that in turn also makes sure that we're running a program such that we're getting the best outcomes for the least amount of effort. And it's really interesting that you're thinking about this because these are skills that are not on the nose cyber skills per se. These are complementary skills. And obviously we talk a lot um, in the industry about the, uh, the cyber skills gap and the massive skills gap for, the, for, that, for that matter. And that was another thing that you discussed in the Wall Street Journal article. Um, in that interview, you said that in some instances, you found that you don't need cyber experts in cybersecurity roles. How have you come to that realization and, and how do you hire or, or structure extended teams? What kind of candidates are you looking for? And are they actually applying for cybersecurity roles? How do you, you know, determine yeah. here's somebody who is not who's not a, you know, cyber careerist, but um, I think that I see some potential there and I'm going to try to try to bring them over to my team. Having an open mind and just setting aside hubris and ego um, okay. and saying, you know, what are the skills that we need? I, I just uh, right before um, our conversation, I was speaking with uh, a team manager on my team. And when we hired him, he was a school teacher teaching math. And he's one of our best managers on the team. In the space that he's in, he had zero expertise in that space, but he had a friend that worked in security. And he said, 
Omar, you've got to hire this person. This person is passionate about learning. This person is passionate about growing. This person is passionate about people. And I said, fine, let's bring him in. We've got an open position. Let's see how fast he learns and grows. And he learned and grew incredibly fast. We've had people over the years. We had, a, I remember we had a freshman that was uh, going to school for psychology. And at the end of his like eight weeks, he gave a presentation that just blew me away. And so you see multiple of these situations. And, and David, it's hard to then say, you know what? I need someone with a degree in computer science or cybersecurity that's done this for six years. Well, I just saw this kid who just finished his freshman year come give a presentation that would blow away most of the presentations given by people on my team that have 10 years of experience. And so you have enough of those enough of those interactions and you're like, these assumptions that we make up, they're fabricated. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, so you have that mix, you create an agile organization, you create a learning organization, you bring people in, you give them the opportunity to learn, you give them the opportunity to move into different roles and you create a climate for them that allows them to be their best and to do their best work. And it doesn't always succeed. There's absolutely cases where it doesn't work well. But the ones where it does, we're just just wildly successful, and it's uh, it's amazing what happens. And um, you know, one of my greatest joys being a leader in an organization is getting to see people learn and grow and realize potential that they didn't even think they had themselves. Hmm. And so, selfishly, that's one of the reasons I love doing it. And it's kind of nice to see the underdog win. Is there something that someone who's new to a cybersecurity role and coming from an entirely different work trajectory? Um, is there something they typically have difficulty adapting to or understanding when it comes to the cyber role? You know, when we've had people move in from other parts of the organization, from a more traditional IT role where they may have just been focused in one area for a very long time of IT, it is a tough transition to come into security because security after that feels a little disorganized. It feels like the wild, wild west. It feels like, why don't we have our plans defined for the next 12 months? Why are we deviating from the plans we said we would execute on a year ago? Um, so being able to adapt, being able to change is really, really important. And I think that's much more uh, a mindset that the individual comes with. So if someone comes in with a growth mindset, someone is comfortable operating in ambiguous environments, those are probably two things. And maybe the third thing I throw in is someone analytical and curious. If someone has those three or four characteristics, you know, they could have studied biology for all I care, and they could probably be very successful in cybersecurity is if they're willing to put that uh, put that learning mindset on and putting the effort in. CISO is a tough job, very stressful. Um, do you have a you know a support network of of other CISOs that you're talking to regularly? Yeah, and, and so David, uh, you know, uh, Carnegie Mellon by uh, many accounts is the place where cybersecurity was uh, invented, and particularly the uh, CERT, the Computer Emergency Response Team at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. And so uh, as part of the program, I'm one of several faculty members that uh, that have the privilege of, of teaching and uh, many other CISOs. So I, I get to interact with many other CISOs as part of that program. And then through my um, uh, board appointments at High Trust and the Fair Institute, I also get to spend time with lots and lots of uh, CISOs and then just generally having been a CISO for, for so long, I've, uh, I'm very, very fortunate to have befriended many people. Uh, and if it weren't for them, I don't think I would be where I am. Like we need 
some of that uh, some of that network to console each other to let us know yes it's hard but you're going to get through it it's not the end of the day you're not the only one that's going through it it's not supposed to be easy and you know we we definitely need that uh, network of uh, motivators around us and inspirers around us and uh, sometimes a uh, shoulder to cry on or sometimes a uh, shoulder to uh, uh, another person to vent to. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I found and when I talk to other leaders with different roles, I don't think anyone has what CISOs have. Like the amount of camaraderie that we have is unimaginable. I can go talk to the CISO of my closest competitor and he will tell me or she will tell me whatever I ask them for. And when I talk to some of my own peers, uh, executive peers at Highmark, and they're like, I, and I say to them, I know the CISO of X company and Y company and Z company, and they're my friend. And when this incident happened, I reached out to them or they reached out to me and where we work through this, they're like, Omar, how are you friends with them? Like, because we're not competing on cyber, we're competing on our core business, but cyber is something that we want to help each other on. And so uh, that camaraderie is uh, is absolutely fantastic. And honestly, if that camaraderie did not exist, I don't think I would have survived as a CISO this long. Great. Could you share your supply chain security philosophy and how it factors into safeguarding systems and delivering patient care? It's, uh, it's twofold, uh, maybe <clears throat> two fronts that we focus on and then a lot of stuff in the in the middle. On the one hand, for our own environment, we want to make sure that we're actively scanning the environment to identify if there's uh, any gaps as best as we can. That is definitely an, an imperfect science to, uh, to do that for every single component and subcomponent of every application and every class and every library that, uh, that we have running across the enterprise within our four walls and in clouds and elsewhere. Um, so there's uh, that aspect of it. And so uh, asset management and things like a software bill of materials become very core components there, uh, partnering with the technology organizations and helping them understand the value of this. This is maybe a little sadistic to say, but Log4j helped a little bit because we understood the amount of time and effort and pain we had to go through because we didn't have a great S-bomb. And after that experience, no application team wants to go through that again. And so now we've got a burning platform to go deploy um, S-bomb and do that well. Um, the other aspect of it, Dave, I think, which is really important is to apply some kind of responsibility and expectation to our third parties to take care of the components that they're using. And so on the one hand, you know, when I go and buy something, it's up to me to go look at the packaging, to go look at the expiration date, maybe to go pick a grocery store that I am going to feel comfortable with. I'm probably not going to go buy milk from a grocery store that I know has, you know, routine power outages because the milk may be spoiled. And I'm not going to feed that to my three-year-old because um, in spite of his antics, I still love him to death. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, like those, we've got to practice responsible care when we're acquiring things. But at the end of the day, it really is up to that third party to make sure that they're telling us exactly what ingredients are on there. And if there is an issue that they are issuing a recall, they're issuing a patch, they're communicating with us, they're letting us know versus saying, we gave it to you, it's no longer our problem, you go figure it out. And I feel like as an industry, we haven't quite figured that out. So 
in the um, <clears throat> in the world of um, food products, there's nutrition labels, and the USDA regulates that. In in other worlds, there are you know there's the uh, the underwriters lab gives you a uh, gives you a stamp that says we feel that this device is not going to electrically shock you or set your house on fire, so you can trust it. I think we need something as simple as that. The only thing that makes it complicated in our world is uh, it can't be point in time. It has to be an ongoing sort of seal of approval to say it's gone through this process. It may not be sufficient, but it's at least a starting point. You know, we've already talked about how stressful a job CISO is and, and you know, looking at 2022 and, and your nine years of service as a CISO you know, how did 2022 rank as far as stress levels go? And, and then going into 2023, um, you know, how, how, do you, how do you intend to manage the stressors of the job um, and, and try to avoid um, burnout if, that, if, that's, if that's something that's actually, you know, on your mind, of course, and, and you know, stress, team stress as well? David, absolutely. I think that's a, uh, that's a fantastic question. Uh, burnout has been on my mind. Uh, for the last two and a half years, ever since the beginning of uh, beginning of COVID, and if I'm honest, I feel like this year I definitely hit burnout for uh, for several months. Um, by far, the best tool a CISO or, for that matter, any leader has uh, is um, is the team. So, if you have a strong team and you're willing to be vulnerable with them, you're willing to be honest with them. Uh, they can do a lot of the work that you think you have to do yourself. So as leaders, if we just let them do that, and if we give them the opportunity, uh, I could tell you what I found over and over again is that my team was capable of doing a lot more than even I thought they were They were capable of doing, and they'll rise to the occasion. So I, I've delegated a whole lot more in 2022 than I've ever done in my previous eight years as a CISO. And um, you know, I expect the the team to take on more and more of uh, of the work and and uh, take it on um and to also find times of being able to slow down times of quiet times of disconnection uh, for instance this past saturday i did something that i've never done since the day i got my first smartphone which is i did not touch my phone for 24 hours and I was so afraid the battery was dying, but I didn't even want to turn it around and see what the battery was. I said to my daughter, can you tell me if the battery's dead on the phone or not? I just want to make sure all the messages come through because at some point I'm going to need to go to it. But it was one of the best things I've done. I've never done that before um, in, my, in my life. That's important. One of the other things I've uh, instituted over the years is, uh, and I made this a requirement for, a requirement for every leader on my team, is that they spend... Uh, they identify one of their direct reports to lead their team for an entire month of the year. So that gives the leader an opportunity to step back. They can go on vacation. They can focus on training. They can focus on planning or strategy or big picture or thinking, whatever it is. But they no longer have to show up to their own meetings because they're no longer in their role. Their direct report is. And David, I think you know part of the reason it's really important is because as leaders, we're role models. We set the tone, what we say, what we do, how we behave, whether we like it or not. I've realized other people are looking at it and paying attention. So if I'm not willing to share that I'm not perfect, if I'm not willing to share that I don't have it all figured out, if I'm not willing to share that, yes, I've hit points of burnout, then what we're implicitly doing is we're telling our teams 
that it is not fair for them to feel or believe any of those things. And if we're doing that, we're actually being horrible leaders. Ultimately, all of us as leaders are trying to do the right thing. What we would rather be are the reliable leaders that the people on our teams that report to us really deserve. And um, that's what we should be focusing on. So much of that is reducing the complexity within our programs to a level that is an absolute minimum. And it's also about bringing humanity back to the workplace, encouraging connections, and giving people the opportunity to be their human selves and bringing their whole selves to work every every day. And if we do those things, we are going to be very successful leaders, running successful programs, and uh, keeping the adversaries out of our way. Omar, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Really terrific speaking with you. Looking forward to catching up with you again. No, I'm uh, very appreciative and uh, grateful for the opportunity to be on the podcast. And thank you for the very thoughtful questions, David. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Trust Issues. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, constructive comment, preferably, but you know, it's up to you. Or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at trustissues at cyberarc.com. And make sure you're following us wherever you listen to podcasts. 